0: Rob Hart's book, The Warehouse, is a speculative dystopian thriller. The central character is a business called Cloud. Think Amazon in the distant future that dominates all online retail. The founder of Cloud is dying of cancer, so he's visiting every distribution center on a final farewell tour. Is he a hero or delusional? Two other characters... They find out just how far Cloud would go to make the world a better place. But for whom? Paxton starts his employment as a security guard for the very company that robbed him of everything. What's his story? And then there is Zinnia, someone who should probably be a CIA operative, not a warehouse picker. What's up, her sleeve? We're thrilled to have our first fiction writer on CFO Bookshelf, Rob Hart, the author of The warehouse. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Ellen Zimmer. She's a controller at Grimco, based in St. Louis, Missouri, and I just had to ask her a couple of her favorite books. One of them she mentioned, Real Numbers by Jean Cunningham, and that's a favorite of mine as well. And Jean has been on her show. Ellen has reread The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which she considers a great book, and I certainly second that. And then finally, Gretchen Rubin's The Happiness Project, which takes a tactical approach to habit formation, and that's one I will certainly be checking out. So again, Ellen Zimmer, a world of thanks for listening. I don't read a lot of fiction, not nearly enough, so when I do, it's a treat. And when I found Rob Hart's book, The Warehouse, it wasn't just an entertaining page-turner. I was taken back because parts of it seemed a bit too real, and as one NPR reviewer calls it, a bit too plausible. And you know a book is good when you find yourself wanting to talk about it to others after you finish it. And by the way, I didn't just listen to it. I even read it in the Kindle version. I did that so I could capture some quotes and other notes in the book. So Rob, am I a nut for both listening and then reading it?
1: No, I mean, I got paid twice. Are you kidding me? I'm thrilled. Um, no, you know, I, I think uh, listening and reading are, are such different experiences. And, um, you know, personally for me, I'm not a huge fan of audiobooks. That's just not really how I consume fiction. And, and you know, if they work for people, that's fantastic. Like, I've got nothing against them. Uh, I also, I can't listen to my own audiobooks. Uh, this is actually something that's common with authors, is the narrative is in your head. Like, you know, you write the book how it sounds in your head. So when you hear someone else reading it, it's actually like kind of weird and kind of uncomfortable. And and Emily Wu who was the, the narrator of The Warehouse, did a phenomenal job. Uh, I absolutely love the work that she did, but it makes me so uneasy listening to it.
0: That's, that, that surprises me. And again, the, the listening experience is outstanding. Uh, by the way, I'm a little bit embarrassed because when I reached out to you, again, I'm I was, I'm socially inept here. I should have realized you had another book that came out after the warehouse. So I am going to be reading it, but this is not your first, cool. this is not your first rodeo. This is your book number. Is this, you're going to be your, you've done three or four books.
1: Oh God. Well, no, I did a, I did a five book series, um, for a small press that was like an amateur PI series. Okay. Um, so I kind of started out more in like smaller kind of like noir crime fiction and that then- and I did a short story collection um, with the same small publisher, and then Warehouse was my first, like, quote unquote, big book. Uh, Warehouse came out from Penguin Random House, and uh, that was like, you know, sold in like twenty something countries, which I'd never done before. I got optioned for a movie, which had never happened to me before. Ron so, Howard. Ron. So yeah, Howard. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I guess Warehouse would be six. Paradox Hotel, which is the one that just came out, would be number seven. Uh, I, but I also, I did a, uh, I did a collaboration with James Patterson. We did a novella together a couple of years ago. So like, I figure like I'm up to like seven and a half.
0: I, I also watched on master class. He, he has a master class and what a, just an interesting individual. Did you know he writes out, he uses a legal pad just to write all of his story. He doesn't use a typewriter. I, I just found that yeah. fascinating. I, before we get into your book, told you this in email earlier, I hope, I hope, my question is going to make sense. My middle initial of my name is a, I I think it stands for abnormally analytical. So I can't, I can't relate to gifted people, creatives like you. I, I don't get it. So one of the best, Novels I've read in the last ten years, 63 by Stephen King, and I okay. and, and I'm and and then and then I studied. I haven't read any of his horror books. I've read two other books of his, and I'm thinking, okay, he's a good writer because he tells us not to use adverbs in one of his books on writing. So he he knows how to write. He's a technician of writing, but he also has this unlimited well. That has no end, it seems like, no bottom of stories. For you, what comes first? Are you just a really gifted writer? Because I think you're a journalist by trade, or that was your first career. Yeah. What comes first, the story, or I'm a good writer. Now I got to come up with a story. Is my question making sense?
1: It does. It does. Um, You know, for me, it's always like i i never have a deficit of ideas you know i've got tons and tons of ideas i've got i've got them all over the place i i uh whenever i come up with an idea that i think has legs i i start a google doc and that way like if something else comes to me or I, i read something in the news or i come across a book or i just have a stray idea related to it i throw it in there but the thing is is like not all of those develop into books you know it's got a it's got to then meet some good characters, you know, because like an idea is great, but unless you have a good character to kind of tell that story through, it's just it's all it is. It's an idea. so i uh, I, I will sometimes, I mean, so warehouse, I conceived of the just the the general idea of like one company takes over the retail economy and does live work facilities. I got that idea in 2012. Uh, I read an article in Mother Jones about uh, it was called "I Was a Warehouse Wage Slave," and I remember reading that article and thinking like, "Wow, like there's a book here." And that was so. Yeah, that was 2012. I didn't really start working on the book in earnest until like 2016, because in in that like interim four years, it was kind of like, "Okay, I've got this idea. Like, what the hell do I do with it?" And it was it was kind of like. I would see stuff in the news that felt relevant. So I would throw it in my doc. I would, you know, kind of think of framing devices for how to tell it. And so finally, it wasn't until I really sat down and focused that it kind of came together. And even then it took like another like year and a half to like really, really like finish and get ready. Um, So yeah, you know, I, I think it's just it's this alchemy thing that's kind of hard to describe, you know, like there's, there's the, the, the technician part of it of like, okay, I have an idea. Okay. I kind of know how to structure it as a thriller. You know, this could be fun. This could be interesting. And then there's sort of like the divine aspect of it. That's really difficult to, to sort of like explain or, 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 you know, um, quantify where it's like, Oh, I found the characters, you know, like now I can make this work.
0: So you've already mentioned the cloud. Do you want to just give a brief synopsis of the book, which, again, is a remarkable, interesting book? I, I did my homework. Uh, I I heard you say on more than one interview, you do not have a company in the back of your mind of who the cloud is. Of course, I'm thinking, is this Amazon uh, 20 years from now or 25 years from now? But... But how, how would you provide the synopsis of the warehouse? Sure.
1: Well, I'll tell you right off the bat that I, I certainly was playing a little coy when the book came out because at the end of the day, Amazon is responsible for like 75% of book sales in the US. So you don't want to go at them too hard. But this far out from release, I just don't care anymore. Um, but the idea is that like it's like an Amazon-like company called Cloud that... You know, takes over the retail economy and builds live-work facilities, sort of similar to like the old mining towns or Foxconn uh, in Asia, where you live and you work, and therefore, like you work more hours for less pay because they're giving you housing. And um, you know, it's it follows three characters: the CEO, uh, who is dying, which is not a spoiler because he announces that in the first chapter. Uh, but this is going to be a huge sea change for the economy because he's the most powerful man in the world, and then. You've got two workers at the facility, uh Paxton who whose business was ruined by this company and now is forced to work there, and Zinnia, who is a corporate spy, who got hired to find something out about the company. And so it's sort of about these three characters and how their stories start to like intertwine on the stage of like late stage capitalism.
0: It's not a it's not a spoiler. And you don't even have to answer the question, but have you eaten any hamburgers uh, lately? (laughs) We'll be right back.
1: Money is all around
0: us, and we think about
1: it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? That actually, I will say, um, you know, for anyone who gets to that point, once they've gotten over their their initial disgust, um that was actually based on a story that came out of Japan. Um, so I didn't make that up completely. I saw that. and, and it it turned out it might have been a hoax, You're but kidding. there's actually like that there was a real story to back that up. So
0: I did yeah. not see that coming. Uh, and again, this is this this will cause people want to to read the book i. When I got to that, I did not see that coming, uh, and, and, and poor, poor Zinnia.
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. Um, a lot of writers, you know, they want to see what they can get away with, and they'll put. And I put that in the book, thinking any reasonable editor is going to ask me to take this out. But right now, this book belongs to me, and I can do whatever I want with it. So I'm going to do something crazy. And we're gonna see what happens. And then everyone responded to it so positively. They were like, This is great. And I'm like, You're insane, but sure. Let's keep it
0: in. Did did you get pushback from your editor?
1: No, no. Um, if anything, uh there there was sort of like some aspects about like the, the the very, very end game about like Cloud's sort of like ultimate plan. He's like, You need to push this further, you need to go darker. And I'm like, Okay, cool. You know, um, my my real concern was that because of Amazon's strength in the industry, that I I, I honestly I thought the book was unpublishable. I'm like, no one's going to bite the bear. You know, I, I turned out to be very wrong about that. And then I was like, well, this is such an American book. This is so much about the American economy. No one's going to buy it in foreign territories. And then we sold it in like twenty something countries. And when I was traveling in other countries, you know, you know, it's it's a very different market in countries like Germany and France because they have laws that say that Amazon can't undercut people on pricing. They have like equal pricing laws. So Amazon doesn't have the same foothold in those countries. Uh, And and yet they still have the same concerns about Amazon as a company. So it was really, really fascinating to like get input from other countries to see what their perspective on this was.
0: I was, as I was first listening and then reading my first first, uh, job out of, uh college i worked at a large cpa firm so i walked a lot of warehouses had to do a lot of what's called physical inventories mm-hmm. oddly or coincidentally my first controllership position was in a large well semi-large retail operation so I spent a lot of time in uh, warehouses and now as a consultant the last 20 years i spent again a lot of time in warehouses I almost got the idea that you maybe worked a few shifts at a warehouse did did that include was that part of your research you You wrote very well it was very realistic in the warehouse
1: i see i and I'm so happy to hear that because I never worked in a warehouse um i I mean I did a ton of research uh and but but the best compliment I got on the book was uh I have a friend who used to work at Amazon and she worked in sort of more like the office setting side, not in the, like the, the, the floor side. But, um, she read the book and she pulls me aside. And she's like, who did you talk to? And I'm like, nobody. So yeah, it was, a. Uh, it's it sort of, you know, again, like I used to be a journalist. So like, that's something that, that, that has always really aided me as a writer of fiction is that like, I'm really good at research, you know, like, uh, I think uh, it's a lot of people don't realize how much material there is out there, how much is accessible if you just know where to look for it. So, you know, I was able to put together like a really, really strong research package that I think informed me in putting this together.
0: One thing I want to mention real quickly is what is life outside the cloud? Because there are several scenes. The first scene I believe in the book is, where you got employees who're trying to get their their job there uh, but then later in the book there's a an extended scene outside of the cloud very, again very well done you want to just give a brief synopsis of what's going on beyond this big bubble, if you will
1: Yeah, yeah you know and I, I very purposely kind of didn't show a lot of what the world outside of these facilities looked like because you know these these big facilities are, are basically again their live work facilities where they're like you know they, they've got housing they've got shopping they've got medical facilities they've got schools they've got li- like literally like when i was when i was building this out i i drew a map of what the facility looked like because i needed to see like you know where everything was in relation to to each other and so what I did is I sat down and I was like, well, what do you need in a city? You know, you you need uh, law enforcement, you need fire services, you need a hospital, you need schools, you need churches, you need a Starbucks, like trying to figure out what goes into a city and then trying to like build like an enclosed facility that that would encompass all of these things. And I kind of, the, the thing that I was kind of going toward was that we've kind of built our way towards this sort of like closed circuit capitalism where this company is now, you know, they're selling us, they're selling us our goods, they're giving us our housing, they're controlling our banking, you know, they're doing all these things. And it's like, you basically just belong to them now. And, um, and that's why I really wanted to avoid like what the rest of the world's look like, because to my mind, there's not much of the rest of the world left. It's like, if you're not living and working in one of these facilities, like your options are pretty limited.
0: You started, you mentioned a few minutes ago, Gibson Wells, and he's he's this is his last year so he's doing the tour of all the facilities at least in the u.s he he goes back he's doing this blog uh he's doing this journal and he's looking back i almost get the idea that he was a pretty maybe a good guy in the beginning so i want to hear from the author and and you, you can you don't have to be too specific if you don't want to but did gibson start out a good guy and then he kind of started becoming who he is today you know that that's an interesting way to think about the
1: question um because look like the best villains don't believe they're villains you know like no one says like i'm evil and i'm going to go out and do this terrible thing they think i'm going to go out and do this thing that i think is right and even though people believe that i'm wrong they're actually the ones who are wrong you know like i mean to to take this in a very dark direction you know hitler did not believe that he was a terrible person he thought he was a hero he thought he was like saving the world when in reality obviously he's one of history's you know greatest villains but from his perspective he did everything right uh which is kind of fascinating you know um and the thing about gibson i mean i'll tell you this uh his voice and his entire sort of personality clicked for me after i read sam walton's autobiography um you know most of my research for this book you know because amazon is a relatively new company in the grand scale of the economy and when i was doing my research there was really only one good book about them it was the everything store by brad stone and i read it and it was great and there was some some decent journalism you know to read about the company but they're also a super secretive company so what i did was i spent a lot of time researching walmart Because Walmart, you know, uh, was established in the 1960s. So you can more clearly see the course of how they changed the economy and the way that they've affected, the way they basically rewrote the playbook. And I read this and it was just, it's amazing because it's like, you know, you read this guy's book and he's very sort of like, he's from Arkansas, he's like Southern down home guy. Like, you know, you know, we worked real hard and we got in there and we got the job done and my employees are my family and... You know, all this really, really positive stuff. But then you look at Walton's record, which is like when the Federal Minimum Wage Act was passed, he took all his Walmarts and he split them up into separate entities so the law wouldn't apply to him so that he can continue paying under minimum wage to his employees, which I got to say is not a great way to treat your family. You know, so it's like but but if you you know and and there's there's a very long history of like really really nasty stuff that Walmart was doing to its employees and to other companies like they built a business model of undercutting smaller companies until they were basically out of business and then absorbing their products and then their their you know abilities and you know but he he would like if, if if you were able to go to Sam Walton now. I mean, he passed away, but if you, I'm sure, if you went to him at any point and said like, "Hey, like you're you're really not doing great things to other people," he'd be like, "Are you kidding me? Like, look at this company I built. Look at all these jobs I get. Like, I did a great job." You know, in his mind, he's a hero. He's like a brilliant, brilliant person, and I think that there's. There's something sort of like endemic to brilliant people who are very successful is they get to a point where they believe that they can't do anything wrong, where everything that they've done must have been correct because they were successful, you know. Their bank account becomes like the final arbiter of whether or not they were right, and because their bank account is huge, they must have been right. And um so yeah, I would say, uh, just to circle all the way back to the original question, I, I I don't think Gibson views himself as evil. I think he's just like, I'm ambitious and I'm brilliant, and I did all these things that no one else was capable of doing.
0: And then he becomes delusional
1: uh, throughout that. Well, that's the thing, you know, and it's like, you know, and, and this is like another example um, Based on my understanding, uh, Steve Steve Jobs at the end of his life when he was suffering from a cancer diagnosis, you know, he decided that he was going to treat it with like, you know, all these sort of experimental treatments and just eat like a very specific diet and that was going to cure it. And my understanding is at the end of his life, he kind of admitted like, shit, I should have gone in for the chemo, you know. But like, I think that's something that happens to these guys that it's like, I'm so brilliant that this thing I believe must be correct. You know, like I, I think like money is the worst thing that could happen. To, money and success is the worst thing that could happen to somebody.
0: There are some really big ideas in this book, and you've seen what I think they are. Uh, I may have missed it. But before we hit those three, I just want to say one more thing about uh, Zinnia and Paxton. So Zinnia, one of the, the main characters, she works in the warehouse. Paxton is a security guard. So they each have their arcs, and they eventually come together. And and there's even a little bit of a, a love interest, and I just again applaud you because it takes work to figure out, get the dialogues right, uh, get the stories right, and I'm again I'm still impressed from that earlier question. How does an author do this? Uh, e- even just writing dialogue, you know, is this believable? So uh, again, I know that's not a question, but I'm applauding you just just with those characters. Well done.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, write, writing fiction is kind of wild because you almost do it in like a fugue state. Um, I mean, I got to like I'm I'm right now I'm working on sort of what I hope is going to be my next book. So I just just this morning, like we sent off a pitch package to my my editor, which is basically like. The overall story in like the first like 20 pages and i'm i'm after this like i'm gonna sit down with one of the research books that i'm reading and try to knock it out today because it's kind of dense and um there and, and there's a part of me that's like looking at this process that's like i have no idea how to write a novel like how does anyone do this and and this is after like you know seven books i i still feel very much like an amateur and very much like a beginner um but a writer friend of mine explained it to me really well, and, and, and again, I think this is a very shared attitude amongst writers, is that writing a novel is like climbing a mountain. You climb the mountain, you get to the other side, you look at the next mountain, and you think, like, I, like how do you climb a mountain? I have no idea how to do this. Like, what, what, what is happening? You know, it, it's, just, it's such a big, impossible task. And even after you've done it, you still question whether you can do it
0: again. Something tells me you've got this internal Sherpa who knows what they're doing and they're somehow guiding you along the way. And some of these days you'll figure that out. One of the words I wrote down was losing individualization. So losing the identity of working for a big company like this. That was one of my takeaways. And it made me think of even the businesses I work with is is every person important in this organization? So that was one of my big uh, takeaways as I stepped back when I got done reading the book. Have, have you heard that before or was that something you intended? Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, I, I think it was, I was trying to get toward this idea of, you know, employees kind of becoming cogs in a machine, you know. Um, and, and this goes back to the Mother Jones article uh, that I read. And, and part of the reason that I thought there was really something there worth exploring was this idea that like, you know, it was about these these fulfillment centers that are setting up in economically depressed areas where uh, they're basically the only game in town in terms of employment. And that lets them institute really draconian measures where it's like, oh, you're sick. Sorry, you're fired. You know, and the reason they can do that is because there are so many other people who are just kind of waiting outside for a job. You know, it turns almost into this conveyor belt. It's like they'll cut someone for any reason because like there's there's another warm body looking to take the job. And and it feels like that's what things are kind of turning into. Um, You know, I I can't I can't cite a specific source, but there was actually some some articles recently about how like. Amazon is now actually experiencing like this burn rate with employees. Like they're running out of people to employ because they've burned through so many people Uh, and they're expanding so quickly that it's like, they're just running out of people to hire
0: early in the book. We, we see this blurb that unemployment was at one time, 28% now it's down to 3%. But again, at what cost, you know, profits, big company, presumably better conditions for people buying the stuff working there but again the question has to be at what cost
1: exactly exactly and that's that's the thing that was kind of fun to untangle is that we've kind of like we've put ourselves in this position where at this point in human history I don't think there's any ethical consumption under capitalism anymore because it doesn't matter like, how locally sourced your your goods were. It doesn't matter, you know. E- even when you're shopping local, like somewhere along the way, the environment was severely impacted. Uh, you know, a worker was exploited. You know, someone was paid a, a, a sub living wage. You know, no matter what, we 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 can't we can't really live a, a virtuous life anymore unless we go live in the woods and, and make our own clothes and hunt our own food. And and it's sort of like. It's kind of like the, the 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 difficulty, at least in in sort of processing the book and trying to end the book, because it's like you know what's the answer? Like it's not it's not this really easy cut and dry thing. Because like like the example that I went back to all the time. So like you're 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 an intelligent guy, you know like. I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this are intelligent people. We all know that our iPhones and our on our smartphones are built under conditions that would be illegal in the United States, right? Like even if we don't know the specifics, we know sort of like in in, in a vague way that that the people who built our iPhones were exploited. But we all have iPhones, you know, like we've all kind of agreed, like we're just going to look the other way. And, and we're, we're kind of desensitized to it because like it's, it's not as easy for me to relate to the factory worker in Shenzhen who built it. So it's, it's like we've got this sort of like empathy gap in terms of the economy where it's easy to say like, well, I got the thing that, that made my life easier. Because it's like, what cell phone are you going to buy that's going to be ethical, you know, there's really not an option. So it's like, okay, so live without a cell phone. Like, how am I going to live without a cell phone? Like, I got a seven-year-old daughter. I don't want to not have a cell phone. What if something happens to her? You know? So it's that there are just no easy answers. I I can't, like, people would be like, you know, what's the answer? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I can't figure that out. I just know that there's a problem.
0: At the beginning of the book, you have a quote. I'm not going to say who it's from. It's like, it's, this is brilliant. I pity the man who wants a coat so cheap that the man or woman who produces the cloth or shapes it into a garment will starve in the process. Thank you for putting that yeah. in the book. President Benjamin Harrison.
1: And and you know what was interesting to me about that is that like, you know, the fact that he can even raise that concern, you know, all that time ago. And like that still, it feels very modern and relevant. It's like, that this stuff is like so endemic and so cyclical that, that it's been around longer than we could even, you know, conceive of.
0: Like it's the norm. Like, yeah. Can I read real quickly a a line? It's on page 81. It's from Gibson. He's talking about unions. He says, the biggest scam the world has ever known back in the day when the workers were being exploited, use that word a few minutes ago, exploited, when they were being driven into the ground in unsafe conditions, that made that made a lot of sense. But we're a long way from a fire that 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 is mentioned earlier. First of all, he's being hypocritical. But there's a, a, a another theme that we're talking about, and that's exploitation. And and I see yeah. there being three exploitations. There's exploitation from vendors. Because they're forced to sell cheaply, or they'll just the cloud will just make it themselves, and and you'll find that out from Paxton. Uh, there's exploitation of the employees, and there's exploitation from customers because they become so dependent on buying this cheap stuff or cheaper stuff. So it just makes them so. The concept of exploitation. That will be the word that sticks with me for a long time after reading this book. You
1: know, I'm sure if you read the book, you would assume that my politics skew a little bit toward the left. Like, I'm actually, like, about as far to the left as you can get. But even still, like, you know, I don't even know that unions are the answer because I I, I do believe in unions being a, a force for good in the most part. But also, like, I worked in New York City government for a little while, and I saw A lot of not great things happening with unions where like a lot of that leadership is really sort of like they're more concerned about what benefits they can get from being a union leader than what benefits they can help share with their employees. You know, so we end up in the same situation where you give someone money and power and all of a sudden, you know, they start to lose sight of what's important.
0: Help me out, Rob, real quickly. I work with a lot of CEOs And some of them, they, they never read. I'll get them to reading. And then my problem with them is they can't quit and they keep reading all these nonfiction books. Help me out here, sir. How do we get people or why should people be reading fiction in addition to nonfiction? Well, you know,
1: to me, fiction is really an empathy machine, you know? Um, and it's part of the reason I wrote The warehouse in the first place is like, look, like I was a journalist. Uh, I mean, I've been out of the game for a little while, but you know, I did a lot of research into this subject. I was very passionate about it. I knew I wanted to discuss some big ideas in relation to, you know, how capitalism is kind of like spun out of control and how we've been giving too much power to tech companies and, and all this stuff. And I could have written probably a pretty informed piece, you know, or book or whatever about this subject. And it probably would have been really boring, you know? Um, And the thing about writing fiction is that it allowed me to take the reader and put them in the shoes of these characters and kind of show them what they're experiencing. And and that is such a difference when you can actually, you know, going back to, you know, I didn't ever work in a warehouse, but I know what it's like to work for an unreasonable boss who scares you. Or who, like, kind of gaslights you into believing that you're a family member so that you'll work, like, unpaid overtime or, you know, a- any number of things that, that you know, we all have these shared experiences of, you know, difficult work experiences. I, I don't necessarily need to work in a warehouse to understand that. So the, the thing is, is, like, if I can sort of, like, you know make people see and understand those feelings, they might have an easier time saying like, oh, like I get what this other person is going through, you know? And for me, writing it in sort of like the language of a thriller, I think makes it more palatable to a wider audience. You know, it's like, it's the same reason that like sometimes I have to sneak broccoli into my daughter's mac and cheese. It's like, you know, she needs her vitamins, but she wants to eat it in a a tasty meal. So, you know, it, it's, it's really, really good fiction, you know, it it can kind of seduce a reader, you know, you could be having fun and all of a sudden realize like, oh, like this, this, this other person that I don't know has like experiences that are similar to mine. And I think it's such a, a powerful and incredible thing. And, you know, I, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I'm always telling people, like, especially writers who are just starting out, like the, the best thing they can do is just read. You can, whatever class you want to take, whatever you want to do, like, that's not going to help you just like read nonstop. And, um, but I get what you're saying too, like in, in your field, you know, it's got to be, there's got to be a million books you have to read to like, you know, stay on top of your game, to like know what you're doing, to sort of like learn new business practices and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, fiction, I think ultimately just helps you understand people better.
0: I'm one of those weird guys who in a book, I read the front matter and I read the back matter. So there's a name you mentioned, Maria Fernandez. Can you yeah. could, but please please share that story briefly?
1: Yeah, sure. Um so so Maria's story really stuck out to me uh as I was writing the book and, and then I ultimately decided to dedicate the book to her. Um but she she was uh, she was a woman who worked uh, for a couple of Dunkin Donuts in New Jersey and none of them wanted to hire her full- time because if they hired her full time, they would have had to give her health benefits. and um, so she was essentially like in order to survive and support herself and, and her kids, she was driving around to all these Dunkin Donuts like and doing different shifts. And then one night she was sleeping in her car. Uh, between shifts and she had a gas canister in the backseat and it knocked over and she suffocated on the fumes and, you know, that the year and, and that's tragic enough. The fact that she had, she, she was in a situation where she felt like this was her only option to like, you know, live in her car and work at like these different, these different locations but then when i i did a little digging and like just found that the year that you know this happened to her the ceo of the company made like 10 million dollars and you know that's crazy to me because like look i'm i'm not against you know rewarding people for hard work i'm not against the idea of like you know people being paid at the level of their experience whatever but like no one needs 10 million dollars no one needs that much money you don't need that money to support your family. At that point, that's yacht money. And if you get to the point where you're earning yacht money, like, I don't feel bad for you. Like, you're doing fine. And and this idea that, like, you know, a, a, and they can point fingers and say, oh, well, that was the franchisees. Like, that's not us. That's not the main company. It's like, no, th- this, is, this is the environment that you created where your CEO is going to get enough money to, like, you know, wipe out childhood hunger in at least an entire US state and meanwhile this one person that works for you can't like support themselves based on what you're paying them and uh it made me really angry you know and and i just thought it was like you know the, the, the times had done like a really beautiful story on her that just and it stuck with me until the point where i was like she's kind of the reason that i'm writing this book it's like you know workers like her who've been just completely exploited and you know the the thing that I think gets lost in a lot of these conversations about this wage gap thing, um which is another reason why I wanted to write the book is that you know it's 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 it's, it's easy to get mad at people like that who who earn so much money and just like kind of don't seem to care. But the thing is is like they wouldn't earn that money without people like Maria who are actually there doing the work, you know, so this idea that like, this person is so incredibly necessary to the money that's in your bank account, but you've also created a system where you can pay them as little as humanly possible, to the point where they can't even support themselves. I mean, like that ought to be criminal.
0: And I love this question. We ask every guest this. Favorite books? I and you're a reader, so some of your favorites. Now you may say, Mark, I need an hour, but what are some, <laughs> what are some of your? all-time favorites. What are the ones that you maybe recommend the most? What are the ones that you hope, uh, you mentioned a daughter, what do you hope she grows up uh, reading uh, down down the road? So pick pick, pick an angle there.
1: Sure. Um, I'll tell you my favorite book of all time, uh, which is uh, In the City of Shy Hunters by Tom Spanbauer, um, which is about a young man who moves to a young gay man who like leaves his small town and moves to New York City uh, during the AIDS crisis, and um, it is the best book ever written set in New York City. Could, I, I'm born and raised in New York, and so I tend to like w- w- whenever whenever I see something that's like written by someone who's clearly never been to New York, like my alarm bells go off. This was the most authentic New York book I've ever read. It's also like heartbreakingly beautiful and incredibly well-written. Um, Tom is is my favorite author of all time. Um, so that I would highly recommend. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury is definitely a formative book for me. It was one of those books that really made me want to do this in the first place and why I wanted to kind of play in this sort of like speculative fiction, big idea arena, because it's just, you know, so much fun. Um, and I would say, if you really, really want to get on the artsy side, um, look for the collected stories of Amy Hempel. Uh, I think she, she she's a short story writer and I think probably the most brilliant short story writer who's ever lived. Like her stories are just absolutely amazing.
0: This has been... Phenomenal! I told you in an email. I get to interview some really amazing people, but I just felt like a little kid waiting because I've never have interviewed a novelist uh, before. It's like, Mark, don't screw this up. Don't give away the (laughs) ending, um, and don't don't ask stupid questions. But you are amazing. I I just and I've heard you on several interviews, and I don't want to embarrass you too much if I haven't already. Uh, You need to spend more time. Behind a mic and behind a camera, you uh, you are a phenomenal person to hear and listen to and, and watch. So if you haven't been, if someone hasn't told you that, I'm telling you, you, you have great communication skills. So I would love to see someone like you behind a, a mic and and a camera. I don't know in what context, but. I just wanted to applaud you and just some of my research I'd done. Well, thank you.
1: I really appreciate that. And and I really appreciate you having me on. I mean, stuff like this is so exciting to me because, and yeah, like, you know, I, I've I've done a lot of interviews uh, since the book came out and, and it's always, I, I'm always very grateful to have the opportunity. I'm always very excited to talk about the book because obviously like I'm a writer, so I'm a bit of a narcissist. But, you know, the, the really exciting thing is when I get to talk to people who, you know, fiction isn't their, their, you know, like very passionate readers, people who do reading blogs and reading podcasts, those are great. I love them. But it's when I get that outside perspective, you know, it's when I get to talk to someone who says like, this isn't normally my thing, but let's talk about it anyway. It's great for me because I get to see like what sort of perspective they're taking and what kind of questions they're going to ask. Um I just want to share like a really quick story. Um, just recently, I had on Instagram like a couple of kids reached out to me like over the course of a couple of days asking me questions about the book for a school project. And I wasn't really thinking about it. I was just like, "Oh, this is kind of cool." Like sometimes, you know, sometimes when it rains, it pours, and I'm answering the questions, and you know, um, and then I get a message from their teacher, and she's like, "You know, I assigned this book to my kids. Like, thank you so much, like for answering their questions." Uh, I was like oh, this is so cool. Where do you teach? And she told me that it was a school in Jersey. It was like an hour away. I'm like, oh, like, can I come like talk to your class? Like if they're working on the book, why don't I just come answer questions for them? Like I got nothing better to do. And so I drove out there and now, you know, this is a book that, you know, I figure in my head is aimed towards adults, right? Like a lot of weighty themes and and it's, it's adult fiction. And this is a high school class and it's a vocational school. So these are kids who like, don't act like some of them. The teacher is literally reading them the book because they don't have the reading skills necessary to read it. And I sat in the auditorium with these kids and there's probably like a hundred kids. And some of the best, most insightful questions I've ever gotten on the book, you know, and we just had such an incredible conversation. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, I told them, I'm like, guys, like you really knocked it out of the park. Like, this is some of the best input I've gotten on the book and in, in, that, that I can remember. And, you know, the teacher pulled me aside after and she's like, thank you so much for saying that because like this is the local vocational school like these kids get a lot of shit people like they treat them like they're dumb and you came in here and you didn't treat them like they were dumb like, well, they're not, you know, but it was, uh, you know, it's sort of it goes back to this idea of like I love talking to people who I didn't expect would be my audience or, or having conversations with people who are coming at it from a different perspective. And it's so enriching to me as a writer. And I'm always, always, always happy to have this kind of opportunity.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandhi. Dr. Christine Seifert has written an article over at HBR on the benefits of reading fiction. By the way, she's going to be on our show in a few weeks. I want to highlight a couple of the passages from this article. She says when it comes to reading, we may be assuming that reading for knowledge is the best reason to pick up a book. Research, however, according to Dr. Seifert, suggests that reading fiction may provide far more important benefits The nonfiction, and here's what I have highlighted. For example, reading fiction predicts increased social acuity and a sharper ability to comprehend other people's motivations. Do you agree with that? And then finally, I've got this highlighted. Reading nonfiction might certainly be valuable for collecting knowledge. It does little to develop EO, a far more elusive goal. So here is a suggestion this summer. Pick up some fiction and just enjoy the heck out of it. And we need to call this a wrap. Again, thank you, Rob Hart. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf.